Hello, and welcome to episode 26 of the Forensic Files. I'm Dr. N. Today, I want to talk about the Mathis family murders that occurred on September 8th, 1981, in Mount Vernon, South Dakota. In the early hours of September 8th, LaDonna Mathis and her two sons, four-year-old Brian and two-year-old Patrick, were shot as they slept in their beds. LaDonna's third son, Dwayne, an infant at the time, was unharmed, staying at his grandparents' house at the time of the murders. The only witness was LaDonna's husband, John. John's story raised some eyebrows and contained some inconsistencies that are still in question today. The Mathises were rebuilding their home at the time after it burned down in a fire. So the family was staying in a metal shed on the property during construction. On the morning of September 8th, John called the chief deputy at the sheriff's office, who was a friend of his, to tell him his family had been shot. When police showed up, John was inside the shed and had a gunshot wound to his left arm. LaDonna, Brian, and Patrick were all shot in the head. The phrase, Mathis sucks, was spray-painted on the door to the shed in gold paint. John said he woke up at 2 in the morning because his son had to use the bathroom. They had to use an outhouse that was separate from the shed. He heard some commotion while returning his son to the shed, so he went to investigate. He said he saw a car coming onto the property and then noticed the lights in the shed were on. He returned to the shed to see a man with a gun and a stocking over his head emerge and attack him. They struggled until the gun went off, injuring John's left arm. John claims to have passed out from the injury. When he came to, the man was gone, and his family was dead. The local sheriff at the time didn't believe John and had a grand jury investigate, the result of which John was indicted on three counts of first-degree murder. Evidence presented against John at his trial included the house fire. Now, there were two house fires prompting them to rebuild after the second. During the first fire, LaDonna and the kids narrowly escaped with their lives, only to find John already outside of the house. There was a belief that he had intentionally set that fire to murder his family. When John was being treated at the hospital for his gunshot wound, they found an unfired 22 shell in his pocket, similar to what his family was shot with. His explanation was that his son found the shell on their property and he'd picked it up and forgot that it was in his pocket. Additionally, one of Mathis's neighbors, a 17-year-old babysitter for them, testified that John had sexually assaulted her multiple times. The girl's mother, when she found out, threatened to tell LaDonna if John didn't leave her daughter alone. John's watch was also broken, he said, in the struggle that he claims to have with the shooter. However, there were no other injuries to his wrist. There were a couple jewelers who actually testified to the type of damage likely being a result from the watch being smashed repeatedly, so that having been done while it was on his wrist without injuring his wrist sounds really unlikely. In addition to that, the time the watch broke at was 3.25 a.m. 
Remember, John claimed he woke up around 2 a.m. and estimated the man shot his family around 2.30, putting his estimate an hour behind the evidence that the watch suggests, or possibly the other way around, providing evidence that he intentionally broke his watch later on to give the appearance of a struggle but forgot to change the time to corroborate his story. The only blood that was at the scene was contained entirely to the shed, even though John claims the struggle occurred outside of the shed where he was shot in the arm. Is it possible to get shot in the arm without bleeding? I, I doubt it. I think you would see some sort of evidence that that, that happened outside of the shed. Regardless, all of this circumstantial evidence amounted to a pretty convincing case. However, the biggest lingering question and doubt was with the murder weapon. It was never actually recovered. The spray can used to paint the message on the shed was also never found. Now, the Mathis property was quite large, and it was searched extensively multiple times. So if John had been the owner of the gun and the paint can, he would have had to stash them somewhere off-site. It's not impossible, but it would have been difficult to carry it out in the time frame. John also had no trace of gold paint on his hands or his clothing. Now, some people believed John's dad may have helped him cover up the crime, which would explain the lack of murder weapon and paint evidence on John, though no evidence was ever found that connected his father to the crime. One of the weirdest and frankly unbelievable parts of this case is that when the jury went to have dinner on a break from the trial, they found a 22 caliber shell on the sidewalk that appeared to match the shell found in John's pocket, conveniently right outside the diner that they were having dinner at. Instead of being immediately suspicious, like I think all of you are, they took that as evidence that it wasn't actually that rare to find a random 22 shell on the ground after all. The jury deliberated for three days and ultimately found John not guilty on all charges. In an interview in 2011, Dwayne, the only surviving child of John and LaDonna Mathis, said he didn't believe his father committed the murder because he wasn't violent toward him growing up. He also questions why he would leave one child behind. This could be due to the circumstances. Duane was staying with his grandparents, and those grandparents believed until their death that John was guilty, even after the trial. I don't think the absence of violence, especially in an anecdotal account such as Duane's, is proof that John didn't commit the murders. Now, to be fair, I don't believe there's enough evidence at all against him to prove he did commit the murders either. Just because someone doesn't act a certain way around you doesn't mean they're not capable of some sort of action. John could have suffered a severe stressor or a very stressful event that could have led him to commit those acts. Maybe he wasn't in his right mind. Maybe he believed Dwayne could be spared because he was an infant and would have no discernible memory of the family at all. There are a lot of ways that we could speculate around Dwayne's argument, but at the end of the day, there's no proof either way. This is because investigators never followed up on any other leads in the case. The car, the description of the man, the paint, nothing. 
They never looked into John's story seriously at all. They just immediately dismissed it as a lie. There are so many unanswered questions in this case, and the fact that there was no other line of investigation is infuriating. It's been nearly 40 years since these murders occurred, and it's just as cold as the day it happened. The way investigators approached this case seemed more in line with confirming their own beliefs rather than finding the truth and justice for LaDonna Mathis and her children. Thank you for listening to episode 26. If you want to support this podcast, please subscribe, leave a review, and tell your friends. You can listen to The Forensic Files on the website at the-forensic-files.captivate.fm, which is linked in the episode notes. You can also listen anywhere you get podcasts. All episode content was researched, written, and produced by me, Dr. N. All music you hear in the episode was written and produced by me and classical composer Jeffrey Young. Thank you.